In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The song says waiting can be the hardest part. Have you ever seen something that you knew was going to happen about to finally take place? When you were a child, maybe it was a birthday party or Christmas morning, right? I mean, we can all remember, at least I can, being young and trying to sneak with my brothers down the hall and trying to be quiet as you are when you're like eight and five. Trying to sneak around the banister to see what was going on under the tree, to look at what the presents were. Laying around all night waiting for the clock to get to an hour late enough or early enough that your parents weren't going to kill you when you ran into their room and told them it was Christmas morning. So you go down and open the presents. Maybe it's when you finally get to one of those bucketless places on vacation. But not all the waiting ha- that happens ends in happiness, does it? Sometimes we're waiting on the answer to a job. And we wait and we wait and the answer is eventually no. Or worse yet, these days sometimes you don't hear anything at all. I know many of us have sat with loved ones. Waiting for that bittersweet moment when they go on to their reward but we lose their presence here on earth. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadrezzar. Now, Jeremiah has been preaching now for decades. After more than two decades, the people of Judah lose to the Babylonians, and many of them are taken captive, including young Daniel. Way back in chapter 25, we read that Jeremiah is told that God's people will be in captivity for 70 years. And he tells them to let his people know that while they're in captivity, they need to live peaceably. Pray for their rulers, even the Babylonian ones. And God tells them time and time again through Jeremiah, do not rebel. And for his trouble, the king tries to have Jeremiah killed, but the people won't let him kill the prophet. The Babylonians come back and more people are exiled, including Ezekiel. But Judah still stands. It's still a country. God then tells Jeremiah to warn Judah and all of its neighbors, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, people who they often have conflict with, people who often come from the same background, descendants of Abraham, many of them. He tells all of them not to rebel. He tells Jeremiah to start wearing a yoke around his neck, like an oxen or a cattle would as a symbol. But another prophet comes and breaks the yoke from his neck, And says it's time. And guess what? Nothing the other prophet says comes to pass. God has Jeremiah write a letter to those in exile in Babylon and tells them to trust God. Reminding them that the prophecy was that after 70 years, they'll be restored. And not to worry, God still hears them. God has sent prophets to them in their exile. God doesn't want them to think that he's silent in their troubles. But God's people in Judah and Jerusalem don't listen. They rebel against the Babylonians. And now Jerusalem is under siege. But in the midst of that, we get a promise of hope. In their presence, I charge Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. It's one thing to make predictions and prophecies. 
even negative ones. You know, we can watch on TV and there are always a few people living that make their living from telling us that the stock market's about to crash. And guess what? About once a decade, they're right. And then they're hailed as prophets. And then as the stock market goes up, they spend the next five, six, seven years telling people it's about to crash, it's about to crash. And guess what? After a few years, it does again. And again, they're hailed as prophets, right? But it's one thing to make those kind of predictions, right? Are the Eagles going to win or are they going to lose today? Who wants to bet, right? It's easy to make those predictions and make a profit from them, right? The stock market's a cycle. It's going to go up, it's going to go down. And to stop to watch is always right twice a day. It's another thing to put your trust in God's promises. Here we see God tell Jeremiah to continue taking care of his practical needs. Go ahead and buy that piece of land that's in your family. Even while your city is being besieged by the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at the time. And this is the empire that Jeremiah has been saying now for nearly 40 years that the day was coming and they were going to lose. He's about to see Jerusalem sacked, its people killed or carried off. He has yet to write the book of Lamentations. But even knowing and seeing everything around him, like his father Abraham, all these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw them and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on this earth. He knew that God's promises were sure, and that he was going to buy this land seal up all the paperwork so that in 70 years when everything was over, his family could still show their ownership. That is the faith he had in God's promises. The psalmist writes, Put not your trust in rulers nor in any child of earth, for there is no help in them. We understand that. We can probably all tell, tell that time when we wanted the politicians to do the right thing, regardless of who you are, and that time that it was finally crushed when we realized they weren't going to live up to their promises. We can't put our trust in earthly situations. Now, we are supposed to pray for our earthly rulers, and we do pray for them, whether we like them, whether we agree with them, whether we voted for them. Every Sunday, we always pray for the governor and the president, whether I like them or whether you like them or not. That's what God tells us to do. And in Jeremiah's case, he told them to pray for them, even though they just conquered the nation. We have a promise. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. He cares for the stranger. He sustains the orphan and the widow and frustrates the way of the wicked. In the end, our trust has to be in the Lord at all times and in all circumstances, especially when things look bad and we don't know why. Jesus says, There's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now we're still in Luke chapter 16. Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem before, for the last time before the resurrection. Last Sunday, we heard Jesus give a parable about a man who was fired and does some questionable things for a soft landing. And then Jesus calls the crowd to honesty. Now, as you can probably guess, the people in that crowd, some of them cheered, and some of them started jeering. The Bible says that those who loved money heard all this and began sneering at Jesus. 
And Jesus begins to warn them of where this is all going to lead. And then he tells them this story or this parable. Now, for centuries, the church has debated which is which. Is this a story? Did this actually happen? Or is this a parable? Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, amongst others, thinks it might be a story. Because this would be a, if this is a parable, this is the only parable that Jesus told where somebody gets an actual name. Usually in Jesus' parables, we get what? A rich man, a widow woman, an unjust judge. We get descriptors. We don't get names. But here we get Lazarus. But whether he's recounting something that he knew happened or a parable, the story resonates, right? There's a rich man who loves to throw lavish parties, and there's a man who lives at his gates and prays and wishes that he could just eat the scraps from the table of the party. And they seem to know each other, right? The rich man calls Lazarus by name. And then they both die. And then, as he's, as he's in his reward, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Lazarus is with Abraham, and the rich man is not. And Abraham responds, Son, there's a chasm between us that no one can breach. And instead he asks that someone go and warn his brothers instead. And Abraham responds, No, they've got Moses, they've got the prophets. That should be more than enough to warn them. But the man says, No, didn't work for me, Father Abraham. But if someone goes from the dead and raises from it, they'll repent. And Abraham repeats, And if they did not listen to the Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced if someone rises from the dead. Sit with that for a moment. Jesus is telling a story where the ending is, some people are not going to be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. In the story is a guy named Lazarus. Jesus, at the end of the day, had a sense of humor. But the point stands. Miracles will not by themselves convince anyone to trust God. If miracles could work that kind of faith and soften the heart, the children of God would never have rebelled the first time under Moses in the desert, much less the tenth. Or in Joshua days, or David's, Elijah's, Elisha's, Isaiah, Jeremiah's. But the hope we have is that the man telling the story is the man who can cross the chasm. The man who came to lead captivity captive and give gifts unto men. And in a few weeks he would die and be resurrected by faith and transfer us from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of his father. Of course, this, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world so we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we should be content with these. Just like today, Paul and his companions were dealing with a society that was very materialistic. We know what the world's like, right? They want us to keep up with the Joneses. They want us to buy everything in the commercials. If the commercials didn't work, they wouldn't spend millions of dollars to put them in the Super Bowl, would they? They want us to upgrade our phone every year or two. And if they don't, eventually they quit supporting it, right? Maybe we can't take it with us, but I know some people think that being on the Forbes list is a nice legacy to have. But that's not what we are called to do. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life, which you are called to, and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We pursue those things we're called to do, to cling on to eternal life, the promise of the resurrection from Jesus.
to hold true that what we were promised and what was promised, right? As it were, he writes here, to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our job is to be devoted to him who is light and love itself. The one whose presence in the new Jerusalem means that we don't need the sun or the moon. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. And then we get a commandment. As for those who are in this present age rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future, so they may take a hold of the life that really is life. Notice that the advice given here is not that the rich to sell everything they own and give it to the poor. No, they're told in this case not to be haughty, not to look down on those who have less. We hear this even today, don't we? Well, if only they'd have worked harder. If only they'd have gone to the right school. Then they could be rich like me. Hey, we come from better stock. We had better parenting. And not to set their wealth as their yardstick for their hopes. Instead, they are to be generous and ready to share, storing up their treasures in heaven. I find that phrase that we see here, this one, this day may take hold of the life that is really life. We have people in our lives that live a life that's not really life. Some of them struggle with addiction. They'd rather have their next hit or their next drink than take care of their families. We know people that are so far into their jobs they can't do anything else. They can't take a day off. God's called us to be generous and to love our neighbor as ourself. So church, please this morning, prayerfully live in contentment. Pray for your rulers and continue to put your face towards he who is light and love. Amen.